This morning we return again to uh, the book of Psalms, and if you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn this morning with me to Psalm 34. If you weren't here last week, we started a mini-series, I'm calling it, called the Pilgrim Songs, as we're going through five psalms that we've not looked at before here at Ascension. And I suspect that uh, this series, this mini-series, is going to be a, a good stretch Uh, For some of you, those of you particularly who find uh, the poetry, the imagery uh, hard to relate to, hard to digest. We got a lot of engineers in here. Maybe you guys who who love and and women who love the the propositional systematic truths are going to struggle a bit more with the imagery. Suppose you're the people who listen to audiobooks and podcasts in the car rather than rock and roll and, uh, and the blues and whatever it may be. But I wanted to read you a quote as we dive back into this series, a quote from uh, N.T. Wright's book called The Case for the Psalms. And he says, the Psalms change the way we understand some of the deepest elements of who we are. And so he encourages us to sing these songs, and they will renew you from head to toe, from heart to mind. Pray these poems, and they will sustain you on the long, hard, but exhilarating road of Christian discipleship. And that's what we're after in these next few weeks as we open up the Psalter once again. Last week we began our time in this Old Testament book of poetry by looking at Psalm 27, a psalm of confidence, a psalm of David as David was in the midst of significant trouble in his life, trouble that we didn't know specifically what it was, but we were reminded of these gospel realities, That we can be defiant in the face of fear, we can delight in the midst of trouble, and we can look forward to a future, not just an inheritance to come eternally, but we can look to the Lord's good work as we wait upon Him all by His grace and through the gospel. Well, this morning we turn, before we read it, we we turn to a psalm of thanksgiving, a song that was written after a significant event in the life of David. And it's a specific event that we know something about. There are 14 psalms in the book of Psalms that we know the specific circumstances that prompted their writing. And this is one of them, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But David wrote long ago, and the Holy Spirit speaks to us today saying, learn from me, Church of Jesus Christ. Relate to my experience and and take my response as, as your own response. And so he writes this poem to both inspire and to instruct us. And one of the things that's not evident in our English translations is that this is an acrostic poem. An acrostic poem, meaning each line begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's a beautiful piece 
of literature. And most scholars agree that it's basically divided into two parts, verses 1 through 10, as David invites us to praise, and verses 11 through 22, as he continues his observations and instructs us in how to do that. But the famous Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said it's simpler. He said, the first half is a hymn, and the second half is a sermon. And so that's how we're going to attack it this morning, in two pieces, the hymn and the sermon. There's lots of imperatives. There's lots of encouragements here in this psalm. Again, like I did last week, I'd encourage you to read it again this afternoon or this evening. Read it again this week and let it, uh, let it simmer in your soul. But let's dive in this morning and uh, listen to God's Word. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of Psalm 34. Listen as I read. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord. And he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, as I said to you, there are a lot of imperatives, a lot of encouragements that we could camp out on this morning, but I want to look at this psalm with two overarching, simple truths for us to consider and meditate on as we walk through Psalm 34. And the first one is this. Rejoice 
in God who is good to his people. Rejoice in God who is good to his people. Some of you may know this about me already, but I like watches and clocks. I don't know why, ever since I was a boy, I was fascinated with uh, the design, with the movements. I even learned a new word recently uh, taught to me by the Millers. It's a word called horology. Horology, which is the study of measurement and time, the study of the art of making clocks and watches. I've liked watches and clocks for a long time, but I just learned that word last month. But it prompted me to kind of do a little Google search, and when I searched horology, boy, did I find some horologists. You ought to hear these guys talk about watches. You ought to hear them wax eloquent about the movements and extolling the engineering of these watches and these clocks, and, and, and it's fascinating. I suppose in a world of seven billion people, you can find people extolling the virtues of just about everything, right? Something as silly as watches. A couple months ago, I wrote a newsletter article that I know all of you read and digested and were incredibly impacted by. Um, but in it, I quoted C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's a quote that I think I've quoted to you before. In his reflections on the Psalms, he speaks about this phenomenon of, of think, people extolling things, exalting things. He says, the world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praises of weather, wine, dishes, uh, actors, motor horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians, heaven forbid, or scholars. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what men do when they speak of what they care about. Wise words from C.S. Lewis. And so David in Psalm 34, David begins this song of thanksgiving with the overflow of his own heart, with a litany of phrases describing how he is responding to Yahweh following a specific event in his life. I, says David, I bless, I praise, I boast, I am glad. Verse 1 begins with a Hebrew parallelism, two phrases repeating the same idea for emphasis. I bless and his praise at all times and continually. David declares, I worship the Lord by speaking and singing of his worth and his works, and I do this all the time. No matter what, no matter when. 
Paul echoes this in the New Testament, doesn't he? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice, give thanks in all circumstances. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And David here in Psalm 34 says, not just my lips, but it's my soul that makes its boast in the Lord. From the depths of my being, I praise the Lord. I am glad in Yahweh. And you know what? David says, you should do this with me. You should too. Look at verse 3. Again, another parallelism in verse 3. Magnify and exalt with me and let's do this together. Why? Why, David? Well, David says, let me tell you. Let me tell you what my God has done. You see, now we get to the story. If you go back to the title that's in your Bibles there, the title says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, this story is probably not one of the stories that was real memorable from your time in Sunday school. So we've got to think about this a little bit. The story is found in 1 Samuel 21. You can turn there. We're going to turn there in just a moment. This is a time in David's life when he is fleeing for his life from Saul. This is a low point, maybe the lowest point in his life. Verse 6, he describes himself as a poor man. This poor man cried out to God. Just before he wrote this, just before this incident, David had to say goodbye to his, his soulmate, his friend, Jonathan. And he had to part ways with him. And so here he is, he's, he's alone and things are so bad as he flees Saul that he goes to the one place that you think David would never go, Philistia. He goes to the place where just a couple years earlier he had slayed their mighty warrior, Goliath. He still had Goliath's sword. So where does he head? He heads to Philistia. And where does he head in Philistia? He goes to Goliath's hometown of Gath. And he seeks refuge there from the king. Let's flip to 1 Samuel chapter 21, starting at verse 10. Listen as I read. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now you're wondering, it says Achish, king of Gath here, but in the psalm it says Abimelech. What's, what's going on? Is there a mistake there? There's no mistake. Ancient kings often had more than one name, and ancient kings often had titles, like there were many pharaohs. There were many Abimelechs. And so there's no mistake here. David is just using the king's title in his psalm. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. So David's been found out. 
And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior. Here it is. And he pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, You see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. David escaped. More pointedly, Yahweh delivered him. In a fearful time, David, this poor man, cried out when he was alone and had no one else, and the Lord answered. Was it the wisdom of, of, uh, was it the, wisdom of the Lord to act crazy? Was that how the Lord answered? Was it through the favor that he gave David in the eyes of the king? We don't know exactly how the Lord saved him, but we know that David was saved And we know that David was changed. And those who have experienced the goodness of God want to speak of God's goodness. Want to extol and invite others to rejoice with them in God's goodness. And like Moses' radiant face as he came down from the mountain after experiencing the presence of Yahweh. So it says in verse 5 of Psalm 34, those who look to him are radiant. His glory, his peace is reflected in their faces. See, David in Psalm 34 is radiant with God's grace. And he invites us to be radiant in God's grace, to rejoice in God who is good to his people, to let your lips and your lives speak much of him, to tell your stories, not your stories of accomplishment, your stories of the Lord's grace and deliverance and goodness in your life. He is your deliverer. He hears those who look to him, David says. He is present even when you can't see it. I love verse 7 of Psalm 34. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. We, of course, believe, and the Scriptures teach, that God is present everywhere. We are never alone, and yet there are times when His presence is specifically manifested in the lives of His people. The house of God here this morning doing this very thing is one of those times. But as we read this verse in Psalm 34, I don't know about you, but I thought about Elisha and his servant in Dothan. 2 Kings chapter 6, some of you remember this story. The king of Aram has surrounded the city. He knows Elisha is inside. Elisha has been feeding intel to uh, his movements to the the king of Israel, and and the king is done with it. And so he's going to stop the leak as he stops Elisha. And Elisha's servant wakes up, and he looks out, and he says this, 
Or 2 Kings 6 says this, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he, that is Elisha, said, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he might see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. See, believing God's promises at times means believing and trusting and knowing what is there and what is true, though you can't see it. The angel of the Lord that's encamped around the people. David might be alluding here to the pre-incarnate Jesus. Jesus is already dwelling with his people even before he has been made flesh for them. Guarding them. Delivering them. God was working behind the scenes in David's life. God's always working behind the scenes in our lives for our good and for His glory. And yet, right after verse 7, going back to our psalm, right after verse 7 comes verse 8, one of the most memorable verses of the psalm, a phrase that we've heard it quite a bit, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, what I, what I find so striking about this verse in Psalm 34 is that David moves from trusting in what you can't see, the angel of the Lord is encamped around those who fear him. There are spiritual realities that we know are there, but we can't see them. To, to now, in verse 8, bringing us and bringing the Lord suddenly into the realm of the tangible. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I mean, these are, these are more than, than thinking words, right? God isn't, I mean, David isn't merely inviting us to affirm something or, or to know it or to believe it. These are, these are experiential words inviting you to feel something, to think of the Lord more literally than you do. Think about it. God could have created us, his creatures. God could have created humankind to receive nourishment that we need to go about our daily lives in some bland, nondescript ways. Kind of like that bag, that IV bag of nourishment that some of you may have received at times in the hospital when you can't actually take something into your belly. But the Lord didn't, didn't ordain that we receive nourishment that way. He gave us taste. He gave us sweet and sour and savory and why did he do this? So that we might enjoy it, absolutely, but also so that we might be glad in him, that we might be able to taste and see that the Lord is good. 
And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful. I'm thankful that he did it this way, that in the wisdom of God, this is the way things are. Listen to Proverbs 24, verses 13 and 14, because I still see some kind of puzzled faces, like, what are you talking about? I don't, my son, says the teacher, my son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. Let me read you a quote from a a really helpful book that I commend to you. It's called The Things of Earth, written by a guy named Joe Rigney, who's a seminary professor, and he says this on this verse I just read. He says, why did God make honey so tasty and sweet? So that we would have some idea what wisdom is like. At least that's one reason. The sweetness of honey points to the wisdom of God. Honey is good. Our souls have taste buds just like our tongues, and we can train the soul buds by exercising the taste, excuse me, the tongue buds. We savor the sweetness of honey or sweet tea or pumpkin crunch cake and transposing the physical enjoyment of taste onto our souls and offering thanks to God, not only for the simple pleasures of food, but for the spiritual pleasures to which the food is but a fitting echo. So we can taste and see that the Lord is good. Maybe it was a meal, a rich and savory meal that David enjoyed after this deliverance from the king where he was reminded of God's goodness. And so he invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good, to rejoice in the God who is good to his people. Brothers and sisters, we do this as we cultivate lives of of worship each day. We do this as we live together in worshiping community, sharing stories of God's grace and of God's goodness with one another. Take David's words on your lips. Take David's example into your hearts. That's the first thing I want us to think about this morning You've got a good God. Now the question is, do you want a good life? That's where David turns in the second half of the psalm. He instructs us this. The good life comes through the fear of the Lord. The good life comes through the fear of the Lord. Verse 11 begins, come, O children, listen to me. Learn the way to a good life. Learn the path to true life. And it's not the path that you might think. It's not the path of accomplishment and self-effort and self-confidence. It's the opposite. It's humility. It's reverence. It's walking in the fear of the Lord. But maybe we ought to take a step back and ask ourselves, well, just what is a good life? Health, wealth, comfort, security, long days? Well, well, yeah, I mean, to some degree, we all want that, right? 
Verse 12, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? But there is more to a good life than simply those things. There has to be more to a good life than simply those things. Because verse 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. The Lord doesn't promise his people a perfect life as the world thinks of the perfect good life. But he does promise his people his presence and his deliverance. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Those who desire a truly good life must desire God and His ways because there is no good apart from Him. The path to good living, to fearing the Lord then, partially comes in verses 13 and 14. Look at with me. Your mouth is honest and true. Your actions are good and upright. In your relationships, you pursue peace. Peter, speaking to the New Testament church, quotes these verses in 1 Peter 3 as a means of what it means to walk as a Christian, to walk and to grow in grace. And after he quotes these verses, he writes in 1 Peter 3, 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. And there it is. There is the heart of it all. Replacing fear with fear. The fear of man with the fear of the Lord. And specifically here, the fear of Jesus. You see, this is where this old covenant hymn sung by the Old Testament people of God flips up and becomes a new covenant hymn fulfilled in Jesus. What David couldn't see is a presence we now know in Jesus. The Lord has come near to the broken heart through Jesus. The Lord has delivered His people and will continue delivering His people through Jesus. Isaiah 53, 4, listen to some of the familiar phrases in this psalm. Surely He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Brothers and sisters, the promise of this psalm then, the presence and the deliverance that is offered, comes through Jesus. And that's again where we are invited to turn our gaze this morning. As David invites the people of God to look beyond their present circumstances to the goodness of God, I invite you to do the same. Look to the goodness of God in Jesus. He bore your condemnation. The condemnation that's spoken of here for the wicked, he bore it. 
that you might never fear it. And now he invites you to fear his name, to walk in his ways that his deliverance might be yours. You see, the promises of this psalm, they have come to pass in time and in space and in history. And they will come to pass in time and space and history because he will return and he will make all things right. The wicked will be punished just as, verse 20, just as surely as not one of his bones was broken. You see, even as David wrote this, the Holy Spirit was thinking of what was to come. John 19, but when they came to Jesus as he's hanging on the cross, and they saw he was already dead. They did not break his legs, for these things took place that the Scripture, this Scripture, might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. You see, it all points to Jesus. He is the ultimate good to rejoice in. He is the path to the good life that you were created for. He is the deliverer. He has come near and remains near for His people. He will come again and make all things right. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in Jesus. Honor Jesus this day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for the words of Your anointed, the words of David, who through an experience of such trauma and such isolation penned words that we can now take upon our lips, words that we can see in full color through the work and person of Jesus. A song for us to sing on this journey of life. Father, may we be strengthened by this psalm. May we be changed and transformed by this psalm. For your glory, for our good, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.